0: Chapter Four of the Story of Avis This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Story of Avis by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Chapter Four. Yet thoroughly to believe in one's own self, so one's self were thorough, were to do great things. Tennyson. The illuminated hours of life are few. But those of our first youth have a piercing splendor which neither earlier nor later experience can by any chance absorb avis was perhaps sixteen when one of these phosphorescent hours flashed upon her to the day of her death she will recall the last detail that expressed it to her as most of us revive the sunrise of love or the first assault of grief it is given to a few to individualize the moment when aspiration lays a coal of fire upon our young dumb lips. She was down in her father's apple-orchard, where the low outskirting branches yield the outlook to the sea. Between her and the shore slept placidly the expanse of the farm, for whose sake the professor clung with syllogistic precision to the old-fashioned house so far from the centre of the town. The ripening grain had a sinuous, feminine motion under the light wind. The stalks of the young corn turned their edges in profile towards the sun, and the short silk hung like the hair of babies, tangled and falling. It seemed to Avis that she could see a stir now and then, and tiny green hands put up to push it out of winking eyes. In the meadow the long grass rioted. And black and brown and yellow bees made love to crimson clovers. How they blushed! She should think they would—they were too lavish of their honey, those buxom clovers, like an untaught country lassie with a kiss. But the daisies that skirted the old grey stone walls, the slim white daisies with the golden hearts, looked to the young girl's fancy like the virgins in the Bible-story, carrying each a burning lamp. She had climbed into the highest, airiest branch of the highest tree in all the orchard—principally because Aunt Chloe said it was unladylike to climb—anything, everything that Aunt Chloe did not want her to be, she would like to become that morning. It was purely because all things had gone narrowly wrong indoors that day, that she had taken her little blue-and-gold girl's copy of Aurora Lee, and rushed out fiercely with it into the wide June weather. Because Aunt Chloe had made her late to the drawing-lesson to get that parlour swept. Because she had been rude and wrong about it. And Aunt Chloe had been polite and right. Because Aunt Chloe had said she would never grow gentle and womanly like other girls. And she had retorted that she hoped she never, never, never should. Because, too, she had told Aunt Chloe hotly, to that good lady's extreme perplexity, that carpet-dusting, though a pretty trade, was not the imperative labour after all— and so had run up to get the poem, and see in secret if she had her quotation right. Because of all this, here they were, she and Aurora together, tossing like feathers in the apple-bough, high still, safe from all the whole round rasping world. Besides, Aunt Chloe never could find her, and would have to make the pudding by herself. So near our pettiest motives do our largest inspirations lie. She had easily thrown off the annoyance of the morning, with the blessed elastic temper of her young years, flinging herself upon one elbow, in that way of hers, pressing her fingers against her temple and under the girlish fillet of her closely braided hair, balancing herself dexterously by her feet upon the tremulous bough, and so plunged into that idol of the June, that girl's gospel, which will be great as long as there are girls in the world to think it so as few poems are ever read as only an imaginative girl can read those few avis in the apple-bough read on and on she had always meant to take just some such june morning and find out to her satisfaction what the woman really meant to say who wrote that book but had only nibbled at it hitherto indiscriminately after the manner of girls full of the vague restlessness which possesses all healthy young creatures and the more definite hungers natural to a girl of her temperament Avis was ready to be fed with any full rich nutriment which seemed to promise fibrine to a growing soul. Poison or nectar, brimstone or manna, our lips slake at the nearest, be it what it may, in the crisis of that fine fever which comes but once in life. Avis was not without capability of relishing a certain quality of poison, not too fully flavoured, of prismatic tints, and in a lily's shape like hyacinths. But it was silent as a convent in the apple-boughs, the growing day drew on a solemn veil of light. Upon the sea the steps of unseen sacred feet were stirring, and so the manna fell. I like to think of this young thing, coiled there, like an oread in the apple-tree, with the shadow of a leaf set like a seal upon her parted lips, and her eyes leaping now and then, dumb prisoners, from her book to the horizon of the summer sea. Her heart arising with the sweet imperiousness of girlhood to solve the problem of her whole long life before that robin yonder should cease singing, or the next wave break upon the shore, or the lamp of one of the virgin daisies go out under the shadow of the overflying cloud that swept across the meadow. The June was in her with its nightingales, and are there not those of us who would yield our lives to know their Junes once more? Avis, long years after, used to remember with a positive thrill how she said aloud that morning, throwing back her head and turning her eye through the close leaves to the vivid sky, I am alive! What did God mean by that? And then was frightened lest the very Oriole should understand her. It seemed to her to be the first time that she had ever really thought she was alive. But no one could understand—no one should understand. She sat up and looked at the birds with her finger on her lips. Despite our most conscientious endeavor to go on cutting bread and butter, it is on ideals that the world's starvation feeds. And to most of us who must perforce live prose, there is a charm beyond all definition in the development of a poetic nature. In the budding of all young gifts, in the recognition of all high graces, in the kindling of all divine fires, we feel a generous glow upon our own colder and serener fates, like the presence of the late evening light upon a drift of snow. When the passion of our lives has long since wasted into pathos, and hope has shrivelled to fit the cell of care, we lean with increasing ardour on the hearts of those in whom purpose and poetry were permitted to be one. On Monday when the fire smokes, on Tuesday when the bills come in, on Wednesday when the children cry, it is not more smoke, more debt, more tears we want. Tell us, rather, how a statue grew, or how a poem sprang, or how a song was wrought, or how a prayer conceived." Avis climbed down from the apple-tree by and by, with eyes in which a proud young purpose hid. It had come to her now—it had all come to her very plainly—why she was alive, what God meant by making her, what He meant by her being Avis Doble and reading just that thing that morning in the apple-boughs, with the breath of June upon her—Avis Doble, who had rather take her painting lesson than go to the senior party—just Avis, not Coy, nor Barbara. She climbed down and went straight into the house to her father. The Orioles looked kindly after her, and the maiden daisies held their lamps aloft to light the going of her impetuous feet. And perhaps either birds or flowers came nearer to the young girl's heart just then, than our tenderest imagination can ever take us. Aunt Chloe had made her pudding alone, and the professor had eaten it. Avis thought of it as she went to the study. Very well. Other women might make puddings. She went straight to her father's knee, and standing with her straw hat hanging by the strings between her crossed hands, said as simply as if she'd been asking for a kiss, "Papa." I should like to be an artist, if you please." The professor looked up from the critique of pure reason with a faint, appealing perplexity, like a child waked from a nap in a strange room. "'Oh, Avis, you have come. Your aunt missed you at dinner. I am sorry that you have made her more trouble about your domestic duties." Avis stood perfectly still. She seldom entirely lost the delicate, fluctuating color which lighted her face. At that moment she became, for one of the very few times in her life, absolutely pale. "'But Papa—' she stretched out both her hands a little towards him—'Papa, you do not understand me. I have decided this morning that I want to be an artist. I want to be educated as an artist, and paint pictures all my life.' "'Papa!' said the professor. "'Nonsense!' "'Ah, well, we must forgive him. What should he know of the apple-trees and the orioles, the daisies and the blue-and-gold poem, and the way of a June morning with a young girl's heart? "'Nonsense, nonsense,' repeated Professor Doble. "'I can't have you filling your head with any of these womanish apings of a man's affairs, like a monkey playing tunes on a hand-organ.' He spoke of the rude irritability not common with him in his treatment of his little daughter, and under that cavern of his brows glittered the rare spark which his wife had known so well. Avis, by some subtle law of association, thought at that moment of her mother, and wondered if papa were thinking of her also. But she said nothing, only turned miserably away. "'But my child,' called her father more gently, "'come here, come here. What is all this about? I don't understand. If you want to go on with your drawing-lessons, nothing is to prevent—that I know. Make yourself happy with your paint-box, if you like.' That was a very pretty little copy which you made me of Sir William. The likeness was really preserved." Still, still, and forever, ever, Achilles will have his one little vulnerability. When he was a young man, Hegel Doble had been told that he resembled Sir William Hamilton. Perhaps he did—at all events, it was the pride and delight of his gentle life to think so. A portrait engraving of the great philosopher always hung above the study-table. To be invited into that study was to be expected to observe with more or less promptness that remarkable likeness. His college boys understood this so well, that he used frequently to remark, after a visit from some more than commonly promising young man, how much that resemblance seemed to be thought to increase with years. "'It was a very pretty little copy,' repeated the professor. "'I do not want to make pretty little copies,' cried Avis with quivering lip. I, who love my art, would never wish it lower to suit my stature." The professor of intellectual philosophy, not being well read in Aurora Lee, stared at this alarming quotation. But Avis went headlong on. "'I want to be educated—I want to be thoroughly educated in art. Mr. Maynard told me when I drew the Venus that I should go to Florence.' "'Certainly,' said her father. "'You shall go to Florence in due time, like other educated young ladies and when you have had enough of Mr. Maynard, I will send you to the art school, if that will make you happy. But fret no more about being this or that. Your business at present is to be a studious and womanly girl. Now kiss me and run and beg Aunt Chloe's pardon for being late to dinner." So lightly do we dispose of the instincts of the young thing lifting the first startled, self-concentrated eyes to ours. We pat the sleeping lion at our feet as if it were a spaniel, offering milk and sugar to the creature that would feed on flesh and blood, and settle after the trifling disturbance to our after-dinner nap. There was little enough of the lion in poor Avis's composition. She had all the self-consciousness of the artistic temperament, with but a small share of its self-confidence. After this little scene with her father, she shrank and shriveled into herself for a long time. She must be spurred, applauded to her possibility, or it was possible no longer. It seemed to her an arrogance not to measure her belief in herself by the belief of others in her. Above all, she craved at this time the daily stir and stimulus of an idealizing love. She wondered sometimes if, in the feeling that other girls had about their mothers, lay hidden the wine which she found missing from her youth. For a soul which loved her so that it could not help believing in her, Avis could have dared the world. But only mothers, she supposed, ever cared for a perplexed and solitary girl like that. Still, because her hour had come, and because the June was in her, she bent blindly to her young purpose, in her young and groping way. But she quoted no more Mrs. Browning to her father, and if he praised her crayons, she sat politely silent. It is possible that this poised reserve excited in the professor more respect than a man may naturally be supposed to feel for the mental processes of his daughter at any age." When Avis, being nineteen, and having finished, as one was careful to say in Harmouth, her school education—thus delicately expressing the true Harmouth compassion for those types of society in which postgraduate courses of reading were not added to a young lady's accomplishments—when Avis was sent to Europe with the Hogarths and Coy to stay a year, she kissed her father good-bye as innocently and quite as charmingly as any young lady who was travelling to improve her accent and French. But when the year was out, he received from her a serious proposition, that her friends be allowed to return without her, and that she be permitted to remain for an indefinite time, and study art. "'She hasn't underclothes enough,' said Aunt Chloe decidedly. "'I only fitted her out for a year.'" When the professor, with a slow smile, suggested that possibly this was a difficulty which time and talent could overcome, Aunt Chloe looked very much depressed. If Hegel were going to give in to Avis at last, after all the good sense that he had shown in managing her, the poor girl would never be a credit to her—never—and her life's work would simply be thrown away. Aunt Chloe was of quite as unselfish a temper as the most of us, but she found it hard sometimes to trace the exact distinction between Avis's good and her own glory. "'Besides,' urged Aunt Chloe, "'what is to become of her when she is married?' Aunt Chloe held it to be impossible that any woman could make home happy without being able to make good graham bread, and Avis's last remarkable experiment in this direction was yet vividly in mind. How a course of instruction in oil-colours was to help the matter, it really was not immediately easy to see. But the professor strode about his study a little while, and then sat down and wrote, It is the custom, in the training of carrier-doves, to let them loose from their places of confinement into the upper air, but those which do not return readily without interference are cast aside as too dull to be worth the trouble of further education. I let you go, my dear daughter, not without misgivings, but omnipotent nature is wiser than I. I should be duller than the dullest bird among them all, if I could not trust you at her hands." Avis had now plunged into a life which extremely few women in America, twenty years ago, found it either possible or desirable to lead. Those who know anything of art circles in Italy at that time will recall the impression made upon them by her superb perseverance in mastering the difficulties of her position long before her gift had been distinguished from a grace. The shy American girl of the unquestionable breeding and the yet half-blossomed beauty trod the mazes of Florentine life with an innocent rapture which protected her like a shining veil. The prospect of commanding proper surroundings to her venture had seemed at first a hopeless one. But one day her friends looked about to find that the little Yankee girl had brought her circumstances, like spaniels, to her feet. She had even provided herself with a chaperone of Mrs. Hogarth's own selection. She had then armed herself with a new palette, Coy's last kiss, and a single introductory letter and with the sublime assurance of twenty, gone headlong to work. With a dumb joy, such as some world-sick soul of us may feel in the actual long-delayed presence of death, this young thing now began in soul and sense to live. Now indeed she knew that she had never lived before. She read her life backwards, like the Chaldeans, translating all its suppressed text by the light of her aspiration, as happy lovers view their past by the illumination of their love, grudging to time every hour they have spent apart. We find that most of the traits of a great affectional passion exist in the young genius which is making the first use of its antennae. Her letter, over the signature of Frederick Maynard, was addressed to Altamura, once, as the Harmouth drawing-teacher was used to say with lifted head, once his master. "'Go over to Naples,' said the scrutinizing artist to whom the young lady had been advised to carry it. Go and ask altamora what he wants done with you avis went to naples and altamora sent her back again are you ready young lady he had said to spend two days copying a carrot that hangs twenty feet away from you against the wall two hundred if i must said avis then throw away everything in your very pretty portfolio maynard has taken to copying from the flat go back to florence to a man whose name i'll give you in a street that i will tell you Do exactly as he bids you for two years, then come back to me." "'She will get tired of it in six months,' said Aunt Chloe, "'but I'll knit her some woolen stockings, for I'm told the Italian winters are quite rheumatic." Aunt Chloe was still so old-fashioned that she would not say, "'neuralgic,' even of a young lady's bones. And the professor paced the silent study beneath the portrait of Sir William, wondering sometimes when the sun got low, where it was he found that rather touching anecdote about the carrier doves. Avis, in the little bare studio—high, high, high, so high that it seemed by putting her hand out of the window in the roof, she could touch the purple wideness of the Florentine sky—had her own thoughts about those doves, perhaps. But she stooped to her task with a stern, ungirlish doggedness. In the little attic studio, Pegasus kicked at the plough now and then but on the whole behaved himself somewhat remarkably. She was young to have been so docile, but she thought nothing about that. She did not know that she was in any sense unusual in coining the fervours of twenty to secure that most elusive of human gifts—a disciplined imagination. The self-distrust which had shrunk at the first rebuff of ardor was her preservation now. She abandoned herself to the grating drudgeries involved in mastering the technique of art, with a passion of which it were not discerning not to say that it added to the fire of the artist, something of feminine self-abnegation. In short, Avis shared the fate of most American art students in Italy at that time. She simply spent two years unlearning, that she might begin to learn. When these two years were over, she went back to Altamora. He said, Now I will see if you can be taught," and took her with her chaperone into the atelier, under his protection. She went to her place on the front settee before the students entered, and left it after they had gone. When two years were gone again, Altamora sent her to Paris, and Paris sent her to Couture. When she was in Paris, her father came out to see her. "'I think I would let the dove fly,' he said, a little longer." One day Couture came into the studio and said, Mademoiselle, I will give you two years to make a reputation." Avis, standing with her slender thumb piercing her palette, and her brushes gathered with it, thrust out her empty hand with a gesture which the great artist admired more thoroughly than he understood. Her magnificent, rare pallor swept over her face, and the quality of her features heightened. Her face and head looked larger when she was pale. She reminded him at that moment of Sodoma's Roxana, in the Alexanders' marriage at Rome. Copies from the fresco sometimes had that colossal look, and her face had taken on the tints of a deep engraving. If the archangel Gabriel had said,—'Mademoiselle, I will let you into heaven, but be so good as to wait an hour,' Avis might have looked at him with just that widening of the eyes, and parting of the lips. She went back to her apartments that morning with a dazzled face, but she walked weakly, and for the first time for nearly six years of hard work, and hard homesickness, burst into a passion of hysterical tears. She had worked so gently and so humbly, with such patient service of her possibility, that success overtook her with more the grip of a paralysis than the thrill of a delight. For two days she lay actually ill upon her bed. For a week she did not enter the studio, but wandered about Paris like a spirit in a vision. The monarch of her young future had turned lover, and kneeled at her feet. His resplendent promise humbled her. Like the beggar-maiden in the story, she stretched no hand out towards her crown, and stood with downcast eyes before the King Cafetua. It was under the glamour of these blinding days that she found herself one afternoon wandering into the Madeleine. The blessed Christian habit by which an over heart relieves itself in prayer to an unseen God was on her. But just then the tropical Catholic atmosphere came more kindly to the New England girl than any other could. In the college chapel at home, perhaps, she would have found an audible public prayer at an arctic remove from the seething necessities of her mood. She kneeled at vespers in the Madeleine in that temper when a religion of emotions assumes a sacerdotal authority over the intellect, and even a superstition takes on the sacredness of faith. Avis often found in such hours a certain positive physical repose, which only the reverend can understand, or even, perhaps, respect. It seemed to her that these prayers, which bore the burden of centuries of half-inarticulate human longing, surrounded her like everlasting arms, and upon the chant which held the cry of ages, she leaned her head, as John did upon the bosom of his lord. It would be impossible, of course, to explain to any other than a believer that this was something as much deeper than a physiological effect, as the soul is finer than the body. It was when Avis rose from her knees, with the halo that John himself might have worn upon her face, and was about turning, with the few stray Parisians who surrounded her, to leave the Madeleine that afternoon, that she found herself arrested by a pair of eyes fastened upon her in the twilight, across the nave. They were the eyes of a fellow-countryman, as it took but the flash of an instinct to see. Avis, in that flash, said,—'There is a remarkable face!' Perhaps any one would have called it a remarkable face—certainly in the impressive background of the dim-lit church, it blazed like an amber intaglio. We see occasionally in women, but very rarely in a man, that union of the Saxon and the Southern which weds the fair hair to the dark eye. This face was set in a nimbus of bright hair, which, in a boyhood not too long departed, must have been of a deep, unusual gold. A beard which had never known a razor quite concealed the outline of what seemed to be a sensitive mouth, but of that it was impossible to tell. The young man wore his hair a little long, perhaps with either the carelessness or the affectation of a student. Avis liked the shape of his head, which her artist's glance had caught simultaneously with the colour and character of his eyes. These were black, with a large iridescent pupil, which she felt concentrated upon her upon her lifted face, her arrested motion, her responsive attitude, like a burning glass. The telegraphic signal system of the human soul runs now and then in a cipher blank to the most imaginative of us all. It is not easy to explain, but most of us will admit, the effect which people may produce upon one another by the outleaping eye in the prison of a chance crowd. I do not think that I am overstating the case, in saying that these two, man and woman grown, going out from the Madeleine that afternoon to the world's wide ends, would have thought of one another, as we think of an unread poem, or an undiscovered country, as long as either lived. In Avis this was very natural. The artist's world is peopled with the vanishing of such mute and unknown friends, and the artist's eye is privileged to take their passports as they come and go. But when, standing with her gloved hand upon a column, her face draped in the dark veil of her little Parisian hat— Bent slightly forwards and upwards, and her eyes gone rebel to all but the instinct of the moment, starting, she stirred and turned away, she felt a great tidal wave of colour surge across her face. If the eye of that amber god across the Madeleine had caught an artist, it had held a woman. Avis became aware of this with a scorching maidenly self-scorn. She dropped her veil, and hurried from the church. End of chapter 4